Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been taking a look at Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, the third and greatest of the so-called problem comedies that Shakespeare wrote in his middle period, quite different from the earlier and much brighter comedies of his earlier period. Measure for Measure was apparently not all that much liked in its own time and was not for a good deal of time thereafter and only really came into its own in modern times. We appreciate the dark, edgy, and even twisted nature of some of what goes on in it better than previous eras ever did, perhaps. And we have reached in the plot a place where the edgy and twisted nature is beginning to reveal itself in a big way. Claudio, the young romantic lead, is up for execution for having gotten his fiancée pregnant, not waiting until the wedding. And there is a draconian law in Vienna that has never been enforced before this, but the new head of Vienna, Angelo, is going to enforce it. That means capital punishment for anybody who does such a thing. Everybody in the play thinks rightly that this is insane, and we wonder how such a law ever got on the books in the first place, but there it is, and Angelo is determined, having been put into power by the Duke, that he is going to enforce this, and therefore Claudio is in jail awaiting execution. His sister, Isabella, goes to plead for Claudio's life to beg mercy from Angelo, the judge. She is on the verge of taking vows to be a nun in a convent, but since she has not yet taken the final vows, it is legitimate and lawful for her to leave temporarily and go and do this thing of pleading for her brother's life. As she does so, in the scene in which she pleads, at first she has to be urged and revved up and cheerleaded by Lucio, who says, you're going to lose this. You're not putting any enthusiasm into this. Rev it up. And he must have had some effect because Isabella does seem finally to stop sleepwalking and come somewhat to life and show some fire. But that has the unfortunate effect of thawing Mr. Icicle, Mr. Angelo, the upright. He does not let on that it moves him, but it does. What he says is, I will bethink me come again tomorrow. We will postpone this, come back again tomorrow. Because what has gone on inside him is the beginning of a lustful obsession with Isabella, having nothing to do with the merits of her case. And he speaks a soliloquy at the end of Act Two, Scene Two, that is perfectly amazing from the standpoint of deep psychology. 
He asks himself some very hard and very ugly questions. We'll give him credit that far at any rate. And the ugliest question of them all is, what dost thou, or what art thou, Angelo? Dost thou desire her foully for those things that make her good? Do you desire her exactly because you want to ruin her goodness? What provokes this man suddenly and seemingly out of nowhere to everybody else when it all comes out at the end, as we know it will, of course? But here it is unthinkable. The man really is truly something of a machine. He is totally cold, and even to himself, this comes as a totally demoralizing shock to Angelo himself. The true power of it isn't recognized until we see that. He has truly believed his own facade of being coldly upright and never tempted, not only not falling, but I am such that I am not even tempted by these low things that other people are not only tempted by, but fall for. And all of a sudden, he recognizes in himself something really ugly, even uglier than it might seem at first. What motivates this? I mean, why, if you're going to start desiring women, why pick a woman who is there in a nun's habit? She hasn't taken the vows yet, but it would be staged with her actually wearing a nun's habit, though she's not official yet. A woman who is in the garb of a nun, if you're going to start being interested in women, why start there of all places? It's a complex answer to a complex question, but I think there are two levels at least to this. One is simply the inaccessible object of desire, forbidden fruit, the lure of what's forbidden to break through the ice of the ice queen as he sees her. That is no doubt part of it. But I think the words that I just read, his speech is even uglier than that. He has the honesty to ask himself, do I desire her, this particular woman, not just a woman, but this particular woman, because I want to defile that purity. It's not despite the purity, but because of it that I lust for her. In other words, this is rapist's mentality, and Angelo is basically a wannabe rapist. Rape is not about sex, all the books will tell us. It's about power, and it's especially about a sadistic power of revenge over women, anger at women, taking the revenge, ripping them off the pedestal, and so forth. I think that's what Angelo is really talking about. He wants to defile this inaccessible goodness. 
And that's about as ugly as it gets, and I guess we can see why these are called problem comedies. He goes on to say, and again, it's in private, but he at least looks at himself in the mirror and sees some things at this point. Never could the strumpet, could the prostitute, or the slut, with all her double figure, art and nature, once stir my temper, but this virtuous maid subdues me quite. It's not typical lust because the slut kind of woman, the prostitute, and this play is full of prostitutes as well, that type wouldn't stir me a bit. It's this, this virtuous maid that subdues me quite. Ever till now, when men were fond, I smiled and wondered how. And the scene ends with that kind of lame remark, that kind of faltering, I don't even understand myself remark. Amazing scene and we have to see where it goes to. Well, it goes ultimately to their second meeting. He has told her to come back. He said, I will think about it and boy, that's for sure. He's been thinking about it all right. But when she comes back in act two, scene four, she's alone. There are no witnesses. And that means he's going to be able to put it out there on the table. And yet, it's a long scene because it takes him halfway to forever to do that. He is unwilling to come right out with it, and she keeps not getting it. It is a brilliant scene of, again, dark, edgy comedy and twisted human psychology. They do a kind of dance around each other. Both of them, I think, trying not to admit some things, even to themselves. And they go past each other almost endlessly for two pages. Angelo begins by saying, your brother cannot live. And Isabella immediately says, even so, heaven keep your honor. <laughs> and we go, what? She gives up immediately. Okay, sorry I wasted your time. And she starts to leave. There's actually a stage direction. Angelo suddenly, that was not what he had intended. So he suddenly has to basically grab her arm and say, oh, yet may he, he may live a while, it may be, as long as you and I. Okay. So they go on to talk about it and yet not talk about it. They circumlocute, there, there's euphemisms and so forth. And they talk about Angelo's sin. Well, when we're talking about sin, what are we talking about? And 
Angelo asks, what if, to redeem him, give up your body to such sweet uncleanness as she that he hath stained? She clearly thinks, given her response, that he's talking in the abstract rather than the all-too-concrete. And she says, Sir, believe this, I had rather give my body than my soul. But what she clearly means, I think, is that she'd rather give up her body to Christian martyrdom than give up her soul. Angelo dryly responds, I talk not of your soul. No, he don't. And he tries again, but he's still not willing to come right out and say what he wants and what he's requiring. He says, might there not be a charity in sin to save this brother's life? And she has no idea what he's really asking. She says, please you to do it. I'll take it as a peril to my soul. Tis no sin at all but charity. She does not mean having sex with him. She means some sort of penance that she could do or fine that she could pay or who knows what. But she is not getting what he really means. She says, if that, you granting of my suit, if that be sin, she suddenly realizes, well, you know, maybe he means it's sin for me even to be begging for the life of a man who broke this heinous law. If that be sin, I'll make it my mourned prayer to have it added to the faults of mine and nothing of your answer. That's not what Angelo was implying, and he is starting to get frustrated. You can hear it. Nay, but hear me, your sense pursues not mine. Either you are ignorant or seem so craftily, and that's not good. Your sense pursues not mine, you are not getting it, and that means either you're ignorant, either you're so naive that I can't believe it, or you're playing naive, and that's not good because that means you're a cunning game player like me, and there ain't room for two of those in this game. And they go on for another whole page, just circumlocuting and circling around themselves until finally she's beginning to get frustrated at the ambiguity of it all. And she says, let me entreat you speak the former language, meaning the customary language. Put it in English, will you? So he does. And boy, his unconscious gets into the act and he comes up with what must be one of the candidates for largest Freudian slips in all of literature. He blurts out, plainly conceive I love you. Okay, I love you is a euphemism for we know what, but it, the Freudian slip is plainly conceive, really, Angelo? Okay, now she gets it, and she responds with contempt. My brother did love Juliet, and you tell me he shall die for it. 
Angelo keeps going. It's out of the bag now. He shall not, Isabel, if you give me love. She is still reluctant to believe that he actually means this. She thinks that maybe, she's grasping at straws, no doubt, but thinks maybe he's just testing me. I know your virtue hath a license in it which seems a little fouler than it is. He has to disabuse her of that notion. Believe me, on mine honor, another, I don't know if that's a Freudian slip, but it's certainly a stupid slip. Your honor, my words express my purpose. I will proclaim thee, Angelo, look for it. Sign me a present pardon for my brother, or with an outstretched throat I'll tell the world aloud what man thou art. Okay, Isabel finally gets it. To which Angelo, to her shouting defiance, says quietly and coldly, Who will believe thee, Isabel? My unsoiled name, the austereness of my life, my vouch against you, and my place in the state will so your accusation overweigh that you shall stifle in your own report and smell of calumny. They will think you're just trying to blacken my name and lie. And he says, I have begun, and now I give my sensual race the rein. Fit thy consent to my sharp appetite, lay by all nicety and prolixus blushes that banish what they sue for. Stop playing around, baby. This is for real. And you're going to do it. Therefore, Isabel has to make a decision. And her decision is this, almost the last line of the scene which is the end of Act Two. Then Isabel lived chaste and brother die. More than our brother is our chastity. And she goes to announce all of this to her brother, who of course is just going to be so delighted by this turn of events. And Speaking of Claudio, we turn to Act Three, the center act, and the Duke is back, disguised as he was before, as he is throughout the play, as a friar. And he is actually pretending to be a friar and doing what a friar would do in a death chamber the night before some fellow is going to be executed. He is trying to comfort him and give him good advice on the verge of death. Norther Price says, and I don't know where he gets his information, uh, because it was in an era before computer word counts were all that common, I would think, but he says in one of his books that the Duke has the longest speaking part of anyone in Shakespearean comedy. Not in all of Shakespeare, that would be Hamlet. But 
This play is in some ways related to Hamlet and its preoccupations, and the Duke is indeed quite a talker, and there are indeed some enormous, though resonant, speeches in this play. And the speech that the Duke makes to Claudio here is one of them, and it is an extraordinary speech, though we wonder what we are supposed to make of it and how we are supposed to take it. The Duke says to Claudio, who is going to die the very next day, be absolute for death. Either death or life shall thereby be the sweeter. Reason thus with life. If I do lose thee, I do lose a thing that none but fools would keep. A breath thou art servile to all the skyey influences that dost this habitation where thou keep'st hourly afflict. Be absolute for death because life is not worth it, he's saying. You, you lose a thing that none but fools would keep. Life is but a breath. And he goes on for an entire column of verse with powerful but strange eloquence on this theme of life is not worth it. You should be glad to get out of it. He says, for instance, the best of rest is sleep, and that thou oft provokes, yet grossly fierce thy death, which is no more. Thou art not thyself, for thou exists on many a thousand grains that issue out of dust. Happy thou art not, for what thou hast not, still thou strivest to get, and what thou hast forgetst. Thou art not certain, for thy complexion shifts to strange effects after the moon. If thou art rich, thou art poor, for like an ass whose back with ingots bows, Thou bearest thy heavy riches but a journey, and death unloads thee. Friend hast thou none, for thine own bowels, which do call thee sire, the mere effusion of thy proper loins, do curse the gout, serpigo, and the room for ending thee no sooner. Thou hast nor youth nor age, but as it were an after-dinner sleep dreaming on both. That last phrase is often quoted. Life is not worth it. It's a sleep, and you like sleep. You're going to lose yourself. Yourself doesn't exist. He sounds like a 21st century materialist, scientific materialist. There is no self. You exist as many a thousand grains that issue out of dust. So, you know, dust to dust, baby. You're not happy because what you don't have, you strive to get, and the minute you have it, you forget it. You are not certain about anything because you, you constantly shift after the moon. If you are rich, you're poor because you bear all these riches as a burden on your back until you get reach death and death 
unloads thee of them. You have no friend because even your offspring are only waiting and cursing that all of those illnesses you have don't end you any sooner so you can so they can get your inheritance. Thou hast nor youth nor age, but as it were, an after dinner's sleep dreaming on both. It's so long we might say that it's only the Duke being a religious figure but it's so long and so eloquent and haunting that we wonder how are we as the audience supposed to take this? Not to mention how poor Claudio is supposed to be comforted by it, though as we'll see, he does say and is trying to convince himself at least temporarily that he is comforted by it Basically, it is a Stoic message. The Stoic philosophy believed in a detachment from this life. Don't hope for one thing, don't hope for another, don't hope for anything. Whatever happens, fine. And therefore, nothing could affect you, nothing could hurt you, nothing could make you afraid. You are simply detached. Those of us who grew up with Star Trek, it is the Vulcan ideal. It is rational to be purely detached. Here, however, it's put in a religious context. Partly here, but much more explicitly uh, in the speech that Claudio himself will make coming up about the afterlife, that the Duke is a friar giving what purports to be religious advice. How are we to take this in the context of the comedy? And I think this is a highly interpretable thing, and people may differ about it. But I think Shakespeare, the way I interpret it, is that Shakespeare is putting a signpost here about a possible attitude. This play is about the disillusionment of life. We find that life is a problematic, ironic, disillusioning thing. We start out young and naive in the state that Blake called innocence, but eventually we grow up to Blake's state of experience. And what that mainly consists of is disillusionment. Not, life is not what we thought it was. It's very imperfect, even at best. And being condemned to die the next day is not at your best there. But even at best, it is a very imperfect thing. And that is a disillusionment. Therefore, what should our attitude be? I think Shakespeare puts this speech here because it does represent a possible religious attitude, one that has been 
eloquently expressed in certain areas of Christian literature. The metaphysical poet George Herbert, a Christian poet, has a, an amazing poem called The Pulley, which expresses something like the same attitude, that God has a purpose in making us constantly restless, dissatisfied, always falling short of any kind of fulfillment in this world, precisely because that's his pulley. He has to reel us in to a better world. And Measure for Measure is a comedy, at least purportedly, but the biblical narrative is a divine comedy, as Dante recognized in shaping his poem after it and calling it that. A divine comedy, the only really perfect, true happy ending, is not in this world. This is otherworldly advice. There is no satisfaction in this world. We are never satisfied in this world. All objects of desire are inaccessible because if we achieve them, they become unsatisfying to us at that point and we're on to the next obsession. It's a donkey's carrot and we'd be better off out of it or at least detached from it. And there are certain characters, not in Shakespeare, but elsewhere that do represent that possible attitude of transcendence. The greatest of them to me is George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. In the history plays, in the Henry VI plays, Shakespeare shows Joan of Arc as a witch, as an English jingoist attitude, but the St. Joan that Shaw shows is someone who, although she is lively and full of life herself, nevertheless her goal and her goal for everyone is a transcendent world. And sure enough, she has to be martyred in order to achieve that goal. That is a possible goal, whether it's through martyrdom or simply living a religious life. Isabel is going to be in a convent, dedicating herself to that kind of detachment and otherworldly goal of transcendence. Shakespeare is not negating that, except in the sense that this is not a divine comedy, it is a human comedy, and the goal of all the human comedies, at least when Shakespeare is writing them, even the problem comedies, the goal is life. The goal is to end up more firmly anchored in life by the end, which is why they always end. And spoiler alert, this one will be no exception in multiple weddings because people get married, and whether they live happily ever after or not is another question. But at least they live and they live in this world and they have children. The children, the friar says here, may be just waiting for you to die so they can get your money. But that's not the attitude that people have children with. And of course, Claudio and Julieta are going to have 
a child, she's already pregnant. And it is life. It culminates in life, not in transcendence. So Shakespeare is setting this up to indicate two roads diverging. And in Shakespearean comedy, the road of transcendence that would involve the kind of stoic detachment that the Duke seems to be recommending here is a valid path, but not the path of comedy. And therefore, the people who do try to convince themselves that they're choosing it are within the conventions of Shakespearean comedy, not necessarily in life, but in the conventions of comedy as Shakespeare knows it, they are always wrong. And what they are doing is trying to hide from life, seclude themselves from life. We just got finished with Twelfth Night, and that is the attitude of Olivia, who is not taking vows, but who has shut herself up and is wearing black, like Hamlet, we might add. Mourning seven years, she claims, though she doesn't get there, for a dead father and a brother. I am going to retire and stop living because my father and brother died. Meanwhile, Viola, who she genuinely thinks has just lost her brother in a shipwreck, picks herself up, dries herself off, and goes on the task of living and of procuring herself a husband in the name of Count Orsino, and she will succeed in doing that. The game is life, not transcendence. We have to apply that here, too. This is an enormously long speech recommending something that, what does the Duke think he's doing by giving this speech? Is he really trying to convince Claudio? And this is perhaps getting ahead of ourselves by a little bit, but not by much. It may clarify to surmise, the Duke doesn't say this, but he seems to be testing, testing, testing. I advocated keeping the Book of Job in mind, the trials, to see what you're made of, and for that matter, the Garden of Eden. If you read Milton, you find that the whole paradigm of life in Milton's view is trial. You don't know what you are until you are tried and tempted. Adam and Eve did not, and Angelo here did not. And it may well be that the Duke is making a, a wonderful case and revving Claudio up so that he self-hypnotizes into thinking he actually believes this stuff in order that when in the very next scene it all unravels and he begs Isabella for his life, that's painful. When he comes to his senses, he's going to have to confront the fact that he just begged his sister to give herself up to a rapist so that he could live. And he's going to have to live with that. And the play, to again get even further ahead of ourselves, but I think to add something that will turn this play into something other than just knife twisting, the theme of this play is going to be forgiveness and compassion because other people are not perfect and they will act imperfectly and hurt you. 
and you are not perfect and you are going to hurt other people and you are not going to live up to your ideals either and we all have to try as best as we can to bear with one another because we are all examples of what the philosopher Isaiah Berlin called the crooked timber of humanity. And you don't make crooked timbers straight. You have to build with it as it is in its crookedness. A great poem by W.H. Auden, As I Walked Out One Evening, has the wonderful lines, Thou shalt love thy crooked neighbor with thy crooked heart because all neighbors are crooked and all hearts are crooked. And that's the love we have. And it must suffice, but perhaps it could suffice. We'll go on with this next week.